0: Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Fred Katz of The Athletic, the New York Knicks beat writer, and we had a lot to discuss From his excellent piece talking about the potential trade negotiations for Donovan Mitchell to Mitchell's conceptual fit with the Knicks, what the roster looks like now, their salary structure, the evolving NBA finances, Julius Randle's fit with this and potential future iterations of the team. Lots of really great stuff here conversation runs a little bit over an hour and it is brought to you by athletic greens really awesome new sponsor you can go to athleticgreens.com slash real gm to check them out and our friends at betonline.ag use that clns50 promo code for a 50 welcome bonus i really love this pod i hope you enjoy it as well thank you so much for coming on thank you for having me I'll start this with an apology. You and I usually do capriotis at some point during summer league, but I think because of our different schedules this year, that didn't end up happening. So I apologize for that. It is something I truly look forward to every year.
1: I know. Well, you know what? Capriotis, Like when we started going there, it was just a Vegas thing, and now they're all over. There's one in New York. There's one in D.C. They're in like a million different cities. So I don't. I don't feel as. Uh, I don't feel like it's so D.C. or uh, so Vegas specific anymore. You know. Like there's one on like seventy something Street in New York right now, eighty something Street. I can just like run up there and get a Capriati sandwich and I'm good to go.
0: I'm thrilled for them. By by the way, congratulations on your success, Capriati's. Fred and I can can speak your praises as as much as we want to, but you are not turkey
1: sandwiches. Those turkey sandwiches are absolutely bonkers good.
0: Instead, let's get to a different kind of investment, and that is the Knicks potentially investing via trade and then potentially, you know, eventually signing. In Don Mitchell, you wrote a really good piece for The Athletic that came out on Tuesday talking about some of these... The nuances of these trade negotiations and what makes this a fascinating set piece for me is that we know the Knicks are interested in Donovan Mitchell. This is not exactly a secret anywhere, but we also know how Danny Ainge negotiates and I, I like the way that you phrased it—that they're natural trade partners, but that doesn't mean that a trade is going to happen immediately, if necessarily ever.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're 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 perfect trade partners, but imperfect negotiation partners. Right. It's uh, you know a lot about one of one of the things that I think is the most interesting about the NBA and kind of why I wrote that story is. Uh, that So much of what happens has has just kind of nothing to do with what makes sense with the basketball. It's just it's just because people are people and there's always personal dynamics. Sometimes the reason that the guy took the bad shot at the end of the game is just because that's part of it. It's not because he doesn't know it's a bad shot. It's just because it's part of his personality to be able to say, I am a big time player and I can take this shot. And like there's just so much much of what happens in this league and I'm sure in any other professional league is just there's a there's a humanity behind it and I think there's a humanity to these trade negotiations in that you know the Knicks often not always and I say this in that story but but they often have Brock Aller who who's for lack of a better term their cap guy do like the day-to-day stuff on trades, and then Liam Rose, who's the team president, will come in and wrap everything up, and and obviously he's got final say and everything like that. Which is they're hardly the only team that does anything like that. I mean, like you can look at great organizations; a lot of them run like that. Like Toronto runs like that. Masai Ujiri is not trading for you know G League guys. You know Bobby Webster, who's their GM, is kind of doing more of the day-to-day trade conversations when they have them. You know, so it's not totally irregular or anything like that. But with the way that brock aller tends to negotiate he's kind of a stickler you know he i've i've heard i have heard stories from other teams on on deals that haven't even gotten done deals that have gotten done of just like him being like, no, we need, we need those extra draft rights. Like we got to have, we got to have the draft rights to that extra guy. Yes. We, just, we just have to, we got to have those draft rights. And they're like, this guy is 42 years old. He was drafted in 1999. He hasn't played professional basketball in 13 years. And, and, <laughs> and he doesn't even meet, like, for example, they got draft rights to two guys in that, uh, Alec, Burks, New Orleans, Noel, salary dump. And this is not an example, by the way, which I heard this went down in the negotiation. But they got draft rights to two guys. They just changed the minimum consideration rules for draft rights in the league like a few weeks ago. Uh, it used to be up to the league's consideration. I like that I'm on your podcast so I can just talk about minimum consideration and assume that the listeners know what it is.
0: Or at, uh, at a bare minimum that they care and might look it up further if they don't.
1: Exactly. Uh, but minimum consideration is just the least you're, you're you're actually allowed to give up in a trade. You can't top 59 protect a pick draft pick for example it's got to be top 55 that's the most protected you can be that's minimum consideration because league rule says you can't just acquire someone in a trade you have to send something out and often if it's just like you want to kind of in principle just acquire someone without sending something out you send back a top 55 protected draft pick or you send out a draft rights guy and it used to be that it was up to the league's discretion whether the draft rights to a player could be um could be counted as minimum consideration. You couldn't just use the draft rights to someone like the Hawks have the draft rights to someone who was drafted in like 1982. I think it's the oldest draft for draft rights in the league. Like they they couldn't use that as minimum consideration. But they made it so like in a two team trade you have to be uh from the last 5 drafts to meet minimum consideration. And in a, in a three team trade, it has to be from the last nine. And one, one of the guys they, they got from Detroit with the draft rights, like doesn't even meet minimum consideration in a two team trade. Uh, They, they traded for the draft rights of Brad Newley, earlier
0: this season. Oh, Brad and, Newley. And, yeah.
1: Yeah, sure. And 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 he was drafted in like 2006. It's like they just, they, obs- they obsessed. And that was a little bit of a personal connection because Brad Newley was one of Leon Rose's clients as well. So I think they oh, got a little nice. romantic. I think they got a little romantic with that trade. But like they are real sticklers for details for marginal value in trades, not wanting to give up extra second rounders, wanting to acquire extra second rounders, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that sort of personality is in direct contract, a direct contrast to the way that Danny Ainge likes to negotiate. And by the way, I think, I think Zanuck in Utah does a lot of their day-to-day stuff too. And Ainge sets, But Ainge sets the principle of, here is what I deem this player worth in a trade. And when you're willing to give that up, give me a call. And until then, I'll be chilling. And, and I just think the personal dynamics here, even though like Donovan Mitchell to the Knicks makes perfect sense, and the Knicks B package... to to Utah, even just like not even their best package to Utah, makes sense as a return for Donovan Mitchell. Just those personalities, just not saying it's not going to get done. I, I think there's a very realistic chance it gets done. It just affects the process as you go through it.
0: It does. And the other important context that I think is essential for understanding how these negotiations are going to go is the idea that the Knicks will view the Mitchell negotiations Ideally, in a broader context, which is the resources that they do not send out in a Mitchell trade could potentially be involved in getting somebody else to New York. And so the less they give up, and this was my big criticism of Minnesota with the Rudy Gobert trade, is that they gave up so much over so many years that it made it hard for them to significantly improve. And if the Knicks did something commensurate with that, then when if they want to add another good player to this core, they could do that, you know, the Knicks... Depending on what salary goes out, it goes in. Like it's probably not going to be with cap space, but they have enough filler salary to make things work. There are a lot of different ways that could get structured. If they give up too much in this, it's going to be very hard. And then you're you're saying unless you can get a haul like they and the Knicks have done some very good arbitrage during the Rose years, but it's been more on the kind of more on the margins than on the like the large stuff. And so if you give up the whole if you give up the whole thing for Donovan Mitchell, then you're not even going to be able to get like somebody who could be potentially like the third best player on the next great Knicks team. Like that's that's more what you're looking for. And if they're going to be honest with themselves, and I mean, it would be a criticism of mine if they don't, is getting Donovan Mitchell unambiguously makes the Knicks better, depending on the structure, but in, in the immediate, how it's going to go. But it doesn't make them like a championship contender. And you can respond to that two ways. You can respond to that by saying, we're happy with where we are, even if that's not what happens, maybe we'll exceed it. Or you could say, well, we're going to have to do something else. And both of those are reasonable paths, which one they evaluate and then would subsequently choose should a Mitchell trade happen is important. But the context of this is a move, not the last move or the only move is extremely important.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. If if I'm running the Knicks, and this is just my personal opinion, I can't tell you this is exactly how the Knicks are thinking. But if I were running the Knicks, the way that I would be approaching this is my max package. And I wouldn't necessarily offer this logic to utah but my max package that i would offer for donovan mitchell would have enough to left over to where i felt like i could still bring in somebody big specifically in the summer of 2024 i think that's kind of where if you look at the way their cap sheet is right now i think that's kind of where they're in a position to make the next trade two years down the line um you know they're going to have Brunson on the final guaranteed year of his deal in 2425. Julius Randle on the final year of his deal in 2425. Uh they're they're going to have Mitchell Robinson still under contract and he's on a descending deal. I think he's making about a little over 14 million that year. Correct. I say he's like 143 that year. I don't have it. Directly I I do. It is
0: 143. It's disturbing how right you got that. <laughs> Though it was like a week ago, but still, I'm I, impressed.
1: I look, I look at these numbers way too much, Danny. It's like a, it's a, it's a problem. It's I have, I have a serious, a serious, serious problem. Uh, but you know, they're they're going to be really expensive. The starting five in twenty three, in twenty four, twenty five, just their starting five is going to take them really, really close to the tax or to the cap. And and that roster is going to be seriously in danger of going into the tax. And that's okay to go into the tax. But you want to be really good if you're going into the tax. And I think you're in a position just kind of with those contracts. You know, if Brunson outplays his contract, they might be able to treat that as an expiring deal because there might be the assumption, whoever's trading for him, that he's not going to pick up the player option. And if he outplays his contract, somebody might just be really happy to take him because he's a good player. Or I guess if he outplays the contract, he's a very good player on a very reasonable contract. So uh, I think there is something that they can do. Also, two years down the line, it would open up another. Other draft pick now you can trade your 2031 first round pick as well so if they're able to hold on to because they have four draft picks from other teams they have milwaukee 2025 they have washington 2023 which is protected to 2026 they have detroit 2023 which is protected to 2027 and uh they have Dallas's 2023, which is almost certainly going to convey because it'll probably be in the 20s and it's only top 10 protected. It's almost certainly going to convey next year if they're able to like deal those picks and maybe their 2023 and 2025, even if the 2023 and 2025 are unprotected. Then all of a sudden, come the summer of 2024, they can put together those contracts. They can maybe put together a good player or two, and they're able to trade now their 2027, 29, and 31 first round picks, and maybe they're able to acquire some other teams first round picks. And now you got like, that's a legitimate offer to bring in another star. And in 2024, Donovan Mitchell's only going to be 27 and RJ Barrett's only going to be 23. It's not like, or 24. It's, it's not like that is, you know, so far down the line that now these guys are out of their primes. You know, you, if everything goes well, RJ Barrett's not even in his prime yet. And, and, uh, you know, Mitchell is at the very beginning part of it. So I think that would be a very reasonable way for them to look at things.
0: I really like that framing, and I think that the kind of thinking about the age of the Knicks around that twenty four season is very useful because, like, teams don't have to think in terms of like everybody peaking at the same time, but that does give you often the best chance that you have a big competitive. And so, working through some of that, so let's use that twenty four season as a lens. You that would be RJ Barrett's age twenty four season. Julius Randle's age 30 season, Mitchell Robinson, 26, Jalen Brunson, 28. So like a lot of these guys, they're, I wouldn't say they're post-prime, but they're probably in their prime or or in the vicinity, RJ a little bit younger, and then whichever, you know, young guys you still have, which is no big question. And it it puts them in a place where, yeah, I mean, that's going to be shot. And then the other possibility, which I'm sure Brock Aller is getting into, is there is a distinct possibility that in that in that window around that time the cap could go up significantly. And if that's the case, then either A, that reduces, mitigates your luxury tax bill, or that gives you additional flexibility that you could use in a different way. Like maybe you find a home for one or two of those players we were discussing, and then you could use cap space. And then if you could get a you know, and that might be in 25, like that might be the way to do it, is all of a sudden it's like instead of using that flexibility in 24, you could actually clear a max slot in 25. To to pair along with mitchell and everything else like that's and, and but we'll know a lot by that point about where those things are and we do not know those things at this moment and so you you set yourself up to have the right pieces to make the right decision
1: totally let's and, go and, to and, and dan and danny just just adding on to that i wonder what's going to happen with that 2025 when, when all that money comes in in 2025 from the new tv deal because like so danny you live in the bay area that that was a thing in 2016 where cap spike goes up and the Warriors were able to get Kevin Durant even after a 73 win season and with relatively expensive players. And I just I think a lot of people in the league were so turned off by a team's ability to do that because I want to say it spiked from like 67 million to 90 or 92 in 2016. I, I, I wouldn't be shocked if there was some amount of smooth of cap smoothing there because that was just that pissed off like 29 teams when that (laughs) happened
0: i think there will be either smoothing or some sort of other non-linear kind of solution to it where maybe it's like you distribute you distribute that money among players you don't put it all into the salary cap like that isn't even necessarily smoothing it could be something else like you you just structure things a little bit differently for a couple years and, and balance it but yeah i i think there will be enough there and then the other part of that because, you know, this is collectively bargained, it's a collective bargaining agreement, is I don't think the players were thrilled about, in, collect, like, overall, that some players got an immense benefit and others did not. You know, the idea, and, and yes, it was known a couple years ahead, and certain players, just as was the case in when Le- with LeBron and Wade and all that, like, those guys timed their free agency for a reason. Guys timed their free agency with 16 because their agents did a good job and told them it was there. I think it led to some weird differentiations. I mean, you could bring up uh, like Timofey Mozgov as like a player who benefit, or, or Evan Turner, or some of these guys who who benefited from circumstance, and then other players most certainly did not because they were maybe free agents in fourteen or fifteen, and they didn't time it out. And so, yeah, I, I think that there will be something. I don't know exactly what that something will be, but it's also possible that I mean, and there's some of this reporting that the new national TV deal, national TV deal, could be two to two point five three times higher than the current one that you could only smooth so much that it'll be it'll be an increase it just won't be a durant-esque increase and so that's it's a consideration but again and like i i wrote a piece years ago people could read it i believe that one was at the sporting news about the oklahoma city thunder and like i had this criticism that like basically part of my interpretation of the motivation for trading james harden was that they didn't think they could afford their team but they didn't wait long enough and it ended up being it ended up being that because revenues went up higher they could have and And that's why time matters here.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that all, I think that all makes perfect sense. I'm super fascinated by what's going to happen there. I know that like, there are so many people who just, the business, they watch basketball for the basketball and that makes perfect sense. That's why I started watching basketball too. But there are certain things that happen on the financial side that just impact everything to such an immense degree and who goes where. Um, It's going to be very interesting to see how the league handles that.
0: Let's get to the question that I I actually think should be at the forefront in some ways of this. I mean, the negotiations and you wrote about it so well. It's so interesting. You and I both love that. How do you think of Donovan Mitchell's fit with the Knicks as presently constituted and as that constitution could change over the next three to four years?
1: So I think the first thing that people are tending to say when they think of Donovan Mitchell's fit is they wonder, about the defensive match with Jalen Brunson, where Brunson's not a bad defender by any means. He fights hard. He's super stout. He's really strong. He's hard to back down. Uh, he, he, you know, he he plays like good fundamental defense. But he's he's small, and you can only make up for that so much. And Mitchell, uh, you know, is is one of uh, you know has been one of the holes on the Jazz's perimeter for for like years now. We've been talking about the Jazz's perimeter defense just not being able to stick in front of guys. And when you go through the list, it's like, well, okay. Rudy Gobert is not the defensive problem there. Royce O'Neal is not the defensive problem there. Uh, you know, Bogdanovich, Bogdanovich is like guarded LeBron in the playoffs when he was with Indiana, they would use him to like guard LeBron. Um, you know, I think he can make a, a pretty good, and Mike Conley is absolutely not what he used to be, but he's a, he's a also kind of, kind of similar to how I defended Brunson. He's not the same type of defender cause he's more slender and quick and but he is a fundamental defender. It's not like he's gambling, getting caught out of position. I mean, I think I think Mitchell was the biggest problem for them on the perimeter, even though he's long and he's athletic. And if he used his length and his athleticism for good, it could be a total game changer. But we just haven't actually seen that play out in the court. And, and I get it and I agree with those criticisms and and maybe I'm just in my own echo chamber and that's just what I'm seeing and it's not what people are talking about the most. It just happens to be what I'm seeing the most. That being said, I actually think Mitchell and Brunson are, are, are a pretty fantastic offensive fit together. Like I could see that really excelling. You know, Brunson has a whole ton of experience playing alongside an offensive hub and, you know, playing next to Luca obviously, for a number of years. And he played really well off of Luca. He was excellent on those weak side catch and goes. He's so clever inside the three point line. He's just got so many moves like he was a power forward when he was in high school. And he's he just he plays like a power forward who happens to be a small point guard. And I I love watching those guys who have totally different cadences. That's why I'm like obsessed with watching like Kyle Anderson or Shea Gilgis Alexander, just like Brunson has that sort of weird offbeat way that he plays and it it really works next to, um, you know, really worked next to Luca and with Mitchell, I think it could work as well, even though those guys are stylistically different, uh, with Mitchell, I think Mitchell has shown that he can absolutely thrive and when he's thriving, the team thrives, which is not always the truth for a guy getting his own individual offense. Like The Jazz have led the league in points per possession. They have broken the single season record in points per possession with Donovan Mitchell being their offensive leader. So there's no question he is fully capable of being the head of an excellent offense, but I don't think he's the same as Luka in that he's not that level of passer, he's not that level of facilitator and when you load up on him it's nice to have an actual competent point guard next to him who can run a pick and roll, who can create something you know on the weak side or 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 or, or do something with 13 seconds left on the shot clock Mitchell has to give it up And I think Brunson absolutely is that level of player who's good enough to do that. So I think those guys are are, are a pretty great match. Uh, Mitchell's just a three-level scorer who can score from anywhere. I think that guy just tends to be able to – I don't think he's a selfish player either. Like I think that guy tends to fit with a Brunson, tends to fit with a Barrett. He takes 10 threes a game. The Knicks need somebody who takes threes because Lord knows that offense needs some shooting. Uh, I think offensively, he's like kind of a great fit with what they already have.
0: Broadly speaking, I agree with you. I, I think that the Brunson Mitchell offensive fit is is not really a concern for me, and I, I think. One stat on that that gets lost a little bit, I'm happy you brought up how great the Jazz offense has been the last couple of years. And there are a lot of different reasons why the Jazz offense succeeded. First of all, they played just a lot of guys who could shoot, which is an immense benefit. And we'll get into that with the Knicks context. But like, this is the stat that I wanted to mention. When Donovan Mitchell played without Mike Conley last year, so that means the secondary creator was often Jordan Clarkson. Like that's just, you know, who the Jazz had in that situation. Utah last year, 120.9, cleaning the glass offensive rating. That is phenomenal. That is the top five percentile in the NBA last year. And it wasn't it wasn't quite as rosy in twenty twenty slash twenty one, but it was still top ten percentile in the league when Donovan Mitchell played without Mike Conley. And so and Conley, you know, like it's not like he has had the greatest Last two years, I still think he's a really good player. I think teams have to respect it. So the the idea that it can work, and part of why I I like Donovan Mitchell as a fit with this with this group, and by the focus on that, I'm going to say is is Brunson and Barrett, is that having another guy who can create an advantage, I think will yield benefits. And and one way of thinking about that is RJ didn't take a ton of of pull-up threes, but he shot 25% on them last year, and he shot 37% on catch and shoot. And those shots are easier for almost every player in the league. And so that's not to say RJ Barrett's just going to stand in the corner and do nothing. He's not going to be on the Dorian Finney-Smith diet whenever Brunson and Mitchell are on the floor. But generally speaking, there is this frontier that the more... The more you use within an offense, the less efficient a player is going to be. And so there will be a lot of times that Barrett, he's more of a dangerous to me secondary creator than primary. And that's true of almost everybody, but it's true for him. So I agree with you. I think that the triumvirate there offensively, I think that it'll work. And then the other important element of this, and this has come up, you could bring up a lot of different situations for this over the last couple years in the NBA, is that as a practical consideration, depending on how Tibbs runs the rotation or theoretically a future coach, having two of those three on the floor with maybe a lower use. Kind of wing guy that could work out really well too because then you have somebody who can create an advantage, you have somebody who can convert it, and then you have a secondary creator if they overload, and that can work really well to to make it to make it happen. Plenty more with Fred Katz, but first a message from a new sponsor for Real Jam Radio, Athletic Greens. It is a product that I use every day. I started taking AG1 because I was looking for a consistent, healthy morning routine, and AG1 fit it perfectly when I got it. It's something that you take right when you wake up in the morning, and it gives you a nice boost throughout the day. Also, I think it's done a good job of making me have healthier patterns throughout the day, and I I absolutely love it. I've been doing it for now for a couple weeks. And it's hard to kind of imagine not doing so. And also, I really like that it has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, nasty chemicals and still t- and still tastes good. And one way of thinking about it is that AG1, it's a small micro habit with big benefits. It's something you can do every single day. It doesn't take a lot of work, but it'll make a difference in terms of taking great care for great care of yourself, which is so, so important. And they have over 7000 five star reviews so you can check it out and the way to check it out, to make it easy, is you go, so Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase, so you go to athleticgreens.com slash realgm, R-E-A-L-G-M, to check it out. Again, that is Athletic greens.com slash real GM to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. My big concern stems from the power forward spot, because if you want, you you brought up and astutely so, Jalen Brunson and what worked really well for him with the Mavericks. And that was maximal floor spacing, guys who kind of knew what they were doing, who were putting stress on the opposing defense in different ways. Jalen Brunson is an unbelievable finisher, and he finishes better in traffic than most people his size basically ever have. But it's a lot easier to do that when you're when there's one guy or maybe zero guys as opposed to two or three. And so I think that Julius Randle, his fit with that structure is actually distinctly bad unless teams respect his three and unless Julius Randall is okay with his role within that offense.
1: Yeah. I, I honestly think the latter part is going to be even more important than the shooting. And the shooting last year was really problematic. Like, you look at all of Randall's shooting and it's like, Amongst guys with usage rates over 20%, and 20% is just league average, which is why I set the marker there. Uh, You know, amongst guys with usage rate over 20%, Randall was like bottom two or bottom three in effective field goal percentage. Amongst guys who took. You know, high mid-range, high volume guys from the mid-range. I think like the top 34, the top 34 in attempts per game. I think Randall was 34th in percentage from mid-range. He just, the shooting was not even close to there. And his percentages around the rim were not where you want them to be. Now, Now, part of that was... The way the Knicks played, they did not play with a lot of shooters. They almost always use a conventional center who hangs around the rim. Last year, it was Mitchell Robinson, who I I remain convinced my hot take that nobody would ever call hot because it is so nerdy is that if there were a advanced tracking stat that tracked. How often guys have at least what or what percentage of the time on offense that guys have at least one foot in the paint, Mitchell Robinson would lead the league because Mitchell Robinson is, he'll run a dribble handoff every once in a while, but he's still like a flawed dribble handoff guy. He's a flawed screener. He doesn't put the ball on the floor. He's not going to venture out far from the rim ever. And the Knicks weaponize him as an offensive rebounder. So he just hangs there and it clogs stuff up. And if you look at Julius Randle's shot selection last year, he took. Significantly more shots at the rim when Julius Randall, Taj Gibson, Jericho Sims, or, or sorry, when Mitchell Robinson, Taj Gibson, Jericho Sims, or Nerlens Noel was not there with him, and he was next to Obi Toppin, or he was there at the five by himself. He, he went up significantly. His shot selection totally changed. I spoke to him about it midseason and he told me he was completely conscious. He was like, "My role changes when there's a when there's just a five in there clogging the paint. The paint, I got to become more of a jump shooter. Uh, look." I don't think the Knicks have constructed themselves to where they're implying they want to play differently this year. They gave four years and $60 million to Mitchell Robinson. He is going to play. Uh, they signed, uh, you know, Isaiah, Isaiah Hardenstein, who, I think was a good value signing. Uh he to started taking some threes at the end of last year, but and, and he's he's not the same type of player at all as Mitchell Robinson. But it's not like he's some sort of spot up stretch five who's gonna hang around the three-point line. If you use him like that, you're actually misusing him. You kind of want him in the high post and you want him facilitating and you want to weaponize his passing, you know? And and with Randall, it's like If you put him in proper situations, I think the shooting might be able to get a little bit better. He might be able to get a little more comfortable. It fell off to such a degree last year. But I think the greatest question is the second part of what you said, which is, is he going to accept that Jalen Brunson is going to have to create? And if Donovan Mitchell happens to be there, which is obviously possible, how is he going to react to that? Because last year, so much of their offense, especially in the important moments, was Julius Randle brush screen, and then he just kind of drifts over to the 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 high post on the left side of the court and then the ball handler just lobs it into him with 14 seconds left on the clock. And he jabs and he fakes and he jabs again. And then he goes one dribble. Maybe he goes a second dribble, but it kind of ends in a contested step back. And that was just their offense. Uh, you know, if you want to run a different type of offense and Julius Randall is so married to those uh, habits that he just has to play that way, he's going to be extremely disruptive to your ecosystem. And so how, how Julius Randall handles having to play a different way. Are you going to get him to play like he did in New Orleans? Uh, is that going to be tough with Mitchell Robinson out there? Because he's just going to be double and triple teamed every single time because you can help off of RJ Barrett when he's out there as well. It's, it's just, you can also help off of Jalen Brunson because Brunson can absolutely shoot, but at least historically until he starts taking like five threes a game, you can operate under the assumption that he doesn't like to catch and shoot. He likes to catch and go.
0: We saw it in the Western conference finals.
1: Totally. Absolutely. So you can help off of him, even though he's a legitimately good three point shooter. Spacing is about habits and geography even more than it's about actual shooting ability. And, uh, you know, that's, that's going to be a huge question for them uh, after, after the way Randall performed last year,
0: it's a great point. I, I don't know, Fred, if you've ever looked in this. If you haven't, this might end up becoming a piece. But it's at uh, Nate and I, I got I saw this and then I told Nate about it, and it became a, something we talked about a couple times on the pod last year. I'm gonna rattle through, cleaning the glass, you can do a usage filter, but it it'll do it by percentile based on positional group because they're you know wing like point guards use the ball more and everything else like that. But I'm gonna go through, I'll try to do it in order. It's not in order, but I'll try to do it in order of players' usage percentage. So basically, the easy shorthand there is that it's like basically how many how many times did that player take a shot, including a free throw, turn the ball over, or assist on a basket? So, of players who played at least 200 minutes in the NBA last year, here are the ones who had a a, a usage a usage um, percentage 10.2 is going to be the, that's going to be the the highest number that I use for this. You ready? Mm-hmm. Jericho Sims 6.6%, Nerlens Noel 7.3%. Remember this is the entire NBA all players who played over 200 bits. Noel 7.3%, Tony Snell 8.7%, Matisse Thybul 9.1%, Taj Gibson 9.5%, Wes Matthews 10, Royce O'Neal, 10.1, Mitchell Robinson 10.2, Mo Harkless 10.2. There's a, a commonality between a few about half of the players in that in that like 8 yes, group, I just there made. is
1: yes and, there is
0: and, and so you think about like it, it's a really interesting thing because you could say yeah a lot of those guys are limited a lot of it you know this is this is coaching you know it's it's that you're that you're choosing to do that but there's a big problem like there's a difference between having super low usage tony snell and oh i forgot john conchars he, he's a 9.5 as well i ap- apologies to john conchars congratulations on the extension um but <laughs> the there's a difference between a wing or even a point guard who doesn't have the ball in their hands a lot i mean if they're not Shooter, if we get into some of those things, but if you're a non-spacing big who also just never has the ball in their hands, think about how that affects the way your offense flows.
1: It's very true, and I don't need to think about it. I very, I saw it. It affects the way your offense flows. There's no question. What I will say to put those in a little bit further context: You're right. All those guys are clearly limited offensively to to you know varying degrees. But I think part of the reason that we saw that to such an extreme, saw that trend to such an extreme, was that the Knicks just had absolutely no point guard play last year. Derek Rose played 26 games and then got hurt. Uh, and they started They the whole year, basically they started either Kemba Walker who just had a few good games, but seriously struggled and wasn't able to blow by anybody or really get to the paint at all. When he was good, it was for the most part, just because he was hitting his jump shots and you have to be able to like, you know, a player like that, a player like Mitchell Robinson, if you're going to get his usage up to like 14 – he's never going to be a 20 percent usage guy. But if you're going to get his usage up to like 14 percent, right, 15 percent, which is kind of acceptable, that's probably where like a like a Daniel Gafford is, right? 14, 15, 16, 17%. If you're going to get him there, you're often going to get him there because he's coming up high. He's setting screens. A ball handler is going around that screen. The big is screening the ball handler's man. He's getting downhill and he's throwing him a lob or getting him a dump off or whatever else, right? Like that's, that's going to make up for a consequential amount of that guy's You know, shots. And that just wasn't something they had. Kemba Walker wasn't able to get downhill to make those things happen. And then they played a significant chunk of the year once Walker was gone with Alec Burks at the point. And Alec Burks is just not a point guard. And 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 on top of all of that, they were the slowest team in the league getting into their offense they just would would walk the ball up the floor and so many times they just wouldn't even run an action until there was like 13 on the shot clock which is just an honestly an unacceptable way to run your offense like you're just you're just you're just shooting yourself in the foot when you do that somebody makes a basket and they're just giving you the opportunity to walk up the floor and get into your offense there is never a reason why you should be getting into your offense and running the first action with 13 left on the shot clock save for the you know the last play last possession of a quarter or something like that just it's just there's never a reason you should be doing that in the middle of a game and uh, the knicks did it all the time and it was because they just they just didn't have uh you know a Anything close to average point guard play, and I think if they did, those guys, those numbers would look a little different, um, and and those guys would be a little more consequential. And they will have competent point guard play this year, because no matter what you think of the Jalen Brunson contract, he's a good player. Like he's he is a good point guard, and he he is a good winning basketball player. So they'll have that this year. So I'm, I I wonder how those numbers will change for Mitchell Robinson this season because uh, I think they're going to be able to get him the ball in better spots
0: for sure and we'll see the kind of the the adjust what is what if that was the circumstance that I'm really happy you brought up their point guard limitations because that is such an important element that changes the way a team plays it's just is there somebody who could get your players in those spots to succeed who could get the ball to your bigs but it also is you know like who are you running these actions with are you running it with Mitchell Robinson or are you running it with Randall like it, all that there there are considerations there and, and to try to put a number on the point that you were just making it's a very useful thing and unpredictable they they've separated out uh, seth Partno actually talks about this well in his book as well of that pace we've conflated over the years we've conflated pace when it is actually offensive pace and defensive pace and so the idea is so what unpredictable does is it separates it out and so it's like okay how much time do you take to shoot and so after a made shot last year the knicks were the third slowest team to taking to taking something they were 20 they were fourth slowest overall and part of the reason they were fourth slowest is because they got a fair amount of offensive rebounds and you shoot it really fast off of an offensive rebound including Mitchell Robinson and everybody else but they were after after a made shot they were third slowest after a defensive rebound they were fourth slowest to get a shot up and then they were 20th after a defensive rebound than they were faster after an offensive rebound which you know we're all we're talking about margins here within like a tenth of a second for those so that ties in with exactly what you were saying it was taking them too long to get in their actions and that's to get a shot but what the point that you were making which is so important is that it's all it's not only about when you take the shot it's also about when you start the action that can lead to it because that gives the defense more time or in this case less time to break down to create a better shot
1: Totally. Can I can I add to this with an absolutely bonker stat, which I wrote probably two thirds of the way into the season, uh, but it's still relevant, even though it's you know probably twenty five games out of date uh, because the numbers didn't change. Of course. So I wrote this in a story uh, that I was very excited about, but was so nerdy that I don't think anybody else was quite as excited. But. All right. So I had, I had somebody with the team. I don't get to have a second spectrum account, but, uh, but I had somebody with the team look this up for me because second spectrum tracks it. So I'll read this. The Knicks averaged 19.4 seconds on possessions when Alec Burks, brings the ball, brings the ball up. 88 players had brought the ball up at least 500 times through that point in the season. Alec Burks ranked 88th in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of average seconds uh, per possession when he brings the ball up. 19.4 seconds that means that means that they are on an average possession they are getting off a shot with less than five seconds left on the shot clock and and you think think about how like that's not done Danny okay I'm not done so Alec Burks was 88th out of 88 do you know who 87th out of 88 was oh no Kemba Walker Woo. so that's really your problem well so how much of that do you
0: think though is how much of that is Alec Burks and Kemba Walker both of whom we'll see on different teams this year and how much of that do you think is Tom
1: up. I would say it was I mean it's it's kind of all intertwined because like the reason Alec Burks is running the point as opposed to like Emmanuel quickly is because of Tibbs. Um so it's kinda intertwined. Look, Tibbs for the most part is not necessarily playing with like fast offenses or anything like that. But I would say the majority of it was was Burks and Walker. I mean, I don't think and that's just based on like the eye test. You know, there were just so many possessions. Like I'm I'm not a Knicks fan, but I like watching basketball you know, played in its most beautiful form. And there are just so many possessions where Alec Burks was just slowly walking it up and he crossed half court at 16. And then he just kind of dribbled, you know, 37 feet away from the rim, just kind of dribbled there. And nobody came up and set a screen. And then somebody comes up and sets the screen. And now whoop, there's 12 seconds left in the clock. You let half the shot clock just kind of trickle away. And, uh, I think it was more on the players that said to be clear with Burks specifically, it was on Burks, but like it wasn't Burks's fault because Alec Burks isn't a point guard. And that's why I say it's kind of all, all kind of just tied together. Like Alec Burks is not a point guard. That's not how you best utilize Alec Burks. Alec Burks is a really quality rotation wing. If Alec Burks is coming off the bench as a wing for you, he can, he can defend competently. He's turned himself into a 40% three point shooter. Like he, he's he's a solid passer as a wing he's a good ball mover within your offense like that's a winning player alec burks as 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 coach speak would like to say but like that's just not how alec burks should be used he's a he's a he's a a good quality rotation wing and and that's not how the knicks used him last year so like Yes, it's on it's on Burks, but it's not really on Burks, you know,
0: agreed. It's it's a mix of the two and they are so intertwined. But that's why, you know, multiple years of context will eventually get us closer to that. The Knicks were after a made shot in 2020 slash 21. So the year before they were the slowest team off of made shots and off of defensive rebounds as well. So like this is not a I think their personnel was pretty similar between those two years. But but that was
1: also like they had massive point guard issues that year. That was Alfred Alfred Pate. was we'll the it, year,
0: and that was yeah. um, and that was the year that they got Derrick Rose halfway through. If memory serves, like they didn't have him right. for the first for the first part of the year. They were better, I believe, in the years before that. So that that's all really interesting. Plenty more with Fred Katz, but first a message from BetOnline.ag. Our partners at BetOnline continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports information. Find all the latest odds, news, and sports developments, including Major League Baseball scores, all the latest fighting news, and even next season's early NFL features. BetOnline is your continued source for all your sports wagering information from live betting to playoffs, esports, and more. So head to the website, use the promo code CLNS50. It gives you a 50% welcome bonus, also tells them you came from us. So head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today. Again, use that CLNS50 promo code to get the bonus and get into the action at BetOnline, where the game starts. The other kind of Knicks roster thing I want to discuss... I am, it's so funny because when he was on the Rockets and then to a lesser extent on on Denver, I was not a huge believer in Isaiah Hartenstein. I thought he had an awesome year with the Clippers. And I wondered what his free agency was going to look like. There was this, you know, the idea. I thought he looked, you know, his rib protection numbers were good. He actually was an underrated distributor last year. Like the Clippers had kind of a different theory of their second unit when Hartenstein was out there. He was more of a hub than they ever asked Zubats to be and worked out pretty well. And so I was like, okay, who's going to give him? Who's going to give him that contract? Where's it going to work? And then, and so, and there was also, like, Nate and I had these discussions about whether Hartenstein was better than Mitchell Robinson. All of a sudden, they end up on the same team, and it's a team that uses traditional centers an overwhelming proportion of the time. So, it'll be a challenge to navigate this, but... I, I'm excited to see how this ends up working out.
1: Yeah, me too. I mean I, I think there I think there's a world where their center rotation plays out and there's a sect of the fan base that wants Hartenstein starting over Mitchell Robinson.
0: I would start him now if it if, yeah if, well I, I, but I, I don't think the Knicks will.
1: I mean one of them got two years 16 million and one of them got four years 60 million. So I think we can guess which one is going to start. Yeah, I mean,
0: Mitchell Robinson is making, because his contract is front-loaded, Mitchell Robinson is making more in 22-23 than Hartenstein is over his entire contract. Exactly. Uh,
1: The other part of it is whether you think one or the other is better in a vacuum, I think Hartenstein is is just the better fit with the starters because of all the issues that we talked about. So I think that's going to be a really interesting dynamic to see how that plays out. Maybe it won't matter. Who's starting and and who's backing up? Maybe we read more into who's closing. Because for all Tibbs is weird with his rotations, because in some ways he can be really stubborn with his rotations, like how like how he he just kind of wouldn't really play quickly at the point until the end of last year or or starting Burks at the point a bunch or which, by the way, the the lineup data starting Burks at the point was was not as much of an eyesore as as you might think, like the lineup data was okay, And the reason that they were doing it was because Burks just gave him size and the ability to switch. A little bit more on defense. Uh, but, you know, the, the way that he just really has not given uh, Julius Randle, Obi Toppin, uh, you know, the, those two guys playing together in the front court, he hasn't really given that much of a fair shot. He, he can be stubborn in that way. But within the context of a singular game, he's pretty loose on what he will do in terms of a closing lineup. Like, he'll sit his starters if another lineup is rolling, and he'll he'll sit Julius Randle if a lineup is rolling. It happened multiple times last year where Julius Randle either sat for the fourth quarter or sat until much later than what his usual substitution rotation would be because a lineup was really rolling without him. Because a lot of lineups with Obi Toppin would get rolling because Toppin just kind of, good things just kind of happen when Obi Toppin's on the floor. And uh, so it's going to be interesting maybe to see just like who's closing more. Like if if Hartenstein is consistently outplaying, and and by the way, you look at the advanced rim protection data and he was the second best. Like I think opponents shot forty seven and a half percent on layups and dunks when he was the closest defender. I believe that was the second best figure amongst qualifying big men in the NBA last year. Better than Mitchell Robinson, who had who had very good numbers in that, and that's part of the reason he got fifteen million a year and average annual value. But like it's going to be interesting to see who's closing because if if harsh if Hartenstein is consistently outplaying Mitchell Robinson, I, I think Tibbs will, will go with him because Tibbs has a preference towards rim protection, but both those guys are rim protectors. They're very different types of rim protectors stylistically. Harten, Hartenstein is more of a positional rim protector, whereas Mitchell Robinson is a I have really long arms and I'm really athletic. Athletic, so you should be scared of me rim protector but they're both effective so it, it's i'm very intrigued to see how tibbs is going to handle a bunch of those fourth quarters when when you know the backup center is rolling
0: there's also the balance of the short game and the long game here where you're try you know they, they the knicks have identified mitchell robinson and part of it was also the capacity they had full bird rights on him they did not have that on Hartenstein. shine they had the, the limitations we didn't know how the knicks were going to structure their transactions but they still they didn't not they didn't have the capacity but they also didn't need it to sign Hartenstein to his contract is that you're not only evaluating all of these players, RJ and whatever the young guys like Quentin Grimes are still around if they make a mid-trade or if they don't make a Mitchell trade you know, Grimes and everything, not only about how they fit right now, but we brought up the lens of 2024 of how these players fit with that iteration when this roster, you know, certain components of it could look really different. And so I think that for Leon Rose, for the rest of the front office, it is important to remember as they're watching the team this year, that their best years are to come, but they're coming pretty soon. And so evaluating which of these bigs, evaluating how this the smaller guys fit together in the context of what other moves do we need to make? What guys do we need to send out? What archetypes do we need to bring in to make this the best iteration it can be?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's, that's very fair. I mean, the, the Mitchell Robinson contract was really interesting to me. I still don't quite know what to make of it because... I am predisposed to not wanting to pay that much to an offensively limited center. I just think that the opportunity cost is not necessarily worth it. you know you can get you can get eighty percent of a Mitchell Robinson for thirty percent of the price you know they just they just signed Jericho Sims for example to to a contract that's like six less than six million dollars over three years, and you know like only half of it is guaranteed over those three years. And Jericho Sims is not as good of a player as Mitchell Robinson. He's not as big of a body as Mitchell Robinson, but he does similar stuff. And I think you can make an argument that after what he showed last year and the end of last year, that he's, he's pretty close and his his, his ability is much closer to Mitchell Robinson's and his production is much closer to Mitchell Robinson's than his salary is. And I'm just predisposed to not necessarily wanting to give that much money to a guy who can be that like a finishing center who doesn't shoot and doesn't do anything with the ball. Um, it's just a lot of people tend to regret those contracts. We see them go out all the time, but, but even like, Mason Plumlee who's able to do stuff with the ball is a really good passer like he still signs for the mid-level exception or close to the mid-level exception whatever it was and then a year later ends up getting dumped to Charlotte and Detroit has to attach a second round pick to make it happen you know like you know you give you you give New Orleans Noel close to the mid-level exception and then you end up having to dump him to Detroit it's just like this is what happens when you pay those guys and and, and Mitchell Robinson got got more than that so I just I'm curious but that being said like it like you said it's a descending contract the cap is going to be going up it's going to look a little better each year as his salary declines and the cap increases um so so and 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 most importantly they drafted him in the second round you'll always want to string along the asset. You don't just want to lose something for nothing. And at the point of free agency, it's like they're going to lose him for nothing. He's pretty difficult to sign in trade because he's a base year compensation guy. So it's just, I, I don't quite know. I'm like conflicted in trying to, how do you evaluate that deal?
0: I like a lot that they front loaded it because what that means is that the primary pain that you're taking is in a year that that pain doesn't really matter because the Knicks are far enough below the tax, all that type of stuff. They didn't have the flexibility to do it. So then one way to think about this is, yeah, Mitchell Robinson, you could argue he's overpaid this year. Three years, 43 million after this year. That's imminently reasonable for a potentially starting, like that's a, to me- That's, that's what
1: Daniel Gaffer God yeah, in
0: his that's the that's the salary for a guy who starts and doesn't finish like that. And yes, you could get somebody like Jericho Simpson, but I, th- I think that Mitchell Robinson is meaningfully better there. I also simultaneously don't know where this kind of offer was coming from, and we see this every year in free agency. Another example like that at the same position was Nurkic, where Nurkic that was probably maybe like this pre-negotiated, and like there just wasn't really another there wasn't another suitor. There are teams with cap space, but were the Spurs and Pace. Falling over themselves to sign another center. Maybe Troy Weaver would have done it in Detroit, but I sincerely doubt it. I mean, we saw how hard DeAndre Ayton had to work to get his offer sheet. And so my my thought on it is it was an overpay, but it but the way they structured it makes that overpay less consequential. And so, especially with the cap potentially going up, it's fine. It's you know, it's a little bit over what you need to do, but it's not that big a deal. And in sometimes I would worry about the you know, giving him four guaranteed years and you know the passage. But because it descends, those won't be as heavy. And there is a downside risk, but also Mitchell Robinson's pretty young. The curiosity that I have with it, and this connects... Robinson and Hartenstein is, so I'll I'll connect back to something that also is Knicks related in 2021. In 2021, DeRozan was the exception, but then you had this group of shooting guards that all were seen as relatively similar. I didn't necessarily feel that way, but a lot of people did. And they all ended up with very similar contracts, about 18 million a year for Powell, Evan Fournier, Tim Hardaway Jr. And then Gary Trent got a little bit less, but he also got a shorter deal, something that Messiah has done a couple times now. And so you had a, a, a grouping of those players who were thought of largely similarly they were different ages and everything else but they were kind of you know similar track as the like starter but not a star type of player and then so but then they all got not the same number of years but relatively similar contracts but then Nurkic, Hartenstein, and Robinson and if you wanted to throw Kavon Looney in there or whatever centers people like in this mix they didn't get similar contracts at all like you know like Nurkic and Robinson got a lot of money, Hartenstein and Looney didn't, and part of that might be the, this is the bird rights trap, as as our colleague John Hollinger puts it, is that two of those guys had that, and then Looney did, but they had the situation with the Warriors where that money gets just so prohibitively expensive, Looney appears to have been cool with it, and so there is a curiosity there of, did the teams that paid the premium get a premium for it? And we'll have to see.
1: Yes, that's very true. I mean, you look at the guys who who have gotten... You know those athletic finishing centers to various degrees. You know the Wendell Carter Juniors got Carter. Wendell Carter got four for fifty and. Robert Williams, who's you know at a much higher level, thought of as a much higher level than these guys right now. But at the time he signed his deal, you know there are injury questions, and and he was yet to have his career year. Got four for forty-eight plus some incentives that that'll take him over fifty, I think, to fifty-four, if he gets some. uh You know, Gafford I mentioned got three for forty in an extension. So R- Robinson's a little bit above that, but not in a gigantic way. And and you're right with the declining contract, it's uh, it's not as it's not as big of a deal he's three for 43 uh you know after that and then the last two years will will look a lot different in a, in a different cap environment i was surprised though i thought there would be a team option on year four when we initially saw the numbers because yeah. it would just be so nicks to have a team option yeah
0: they betrayed their own reputation um it's so, true, I, I but I, you know what? They created
1: they they made up for it by you know normally the Knicks the Knicks add a little a little something interesting in the contract you know we, we've gotten used to the team option but they made up for no team option by making it declining so yeah. it's fine it's yeah. still a net even on Knicksiness with the contracts.
0: Yeah. I love the decline. I mean, people who listen to this podcast they did the same
1: thing right? with Brunson.
0: Yep, they did it with Brunson too, and it, it could make it in Brunson's case if things go really well, it might make it harder to negotiate an extension. But I think they'll be okay, um and you could always just resign him with bird rights or, or something else like that uh so i t- i told you beforehand there was gonna be one less nixie thing that i was going to do and it's a game that i play in my head and i've never actually played with you which is how can russell westbrook end up on the team fred Katz is currently reporting covering <laughs> and so i have i have a scenario because i've been playing this game for two weeks it's something i do every year i want you to do it off the cuff how does how does russell westbrook end up on the team fred Katz is currently covering
1: All right. Well, to be clear before we play this game, I don't think he will this time. I think if he does somehow end up on the team that I'm covering, uh, he will he will only be there for a second until there's some sort of buyout that follows. I've played the where does Russell Westbrook end up game so much over the last like 72 hours. And I just struggle to find a trade in which he's not immediately bought out upon the trade happening. Like I, and when he's bought out, like I don't know where he goes. I I just can't.
0: And so, so that is my answer to this is that the Knicks make the Donovan Mitchell trade. The Donovan Mitchell trade involves both Derrick Rose and Emmanuel Quickly. And Russell Westbrook gets traded. Maybe it's to the, maybe it's to the Nets. Maybe it's to a third team. He gets bought out and then becomes the backup point guard for the Knicks. (laughs) That is that to me, that is the most realistic way it happens I do not think it's going to happen I think that for a for myriad reasons Russell Westbrook would end up somewhere else if he even leaves the Lakers in the first place and but that is to me that is the most realistic scenario in part because the Knicks like they don't they're not a logical facilitator in a Russell Westbrook trade
1: yeah I know Mark Stein Rhodes uh, that and, and, and to be clear, Mark Stein did not write that. He was very clear that this was the opposite of imminent. But he wrote that if a Donovan Mitchell trade happens, one possibility would be doing like a Randall and other stuff for Westbrook deal. And then the. I think the implication of his report if I can read between the lines was that the Knicks would then buy out Westbrook. In that case, and so it would really just be a dump of Randall. I I don't see that happening.
0: Oh, the Knicks th- are- I by the way, I would I would hate that for the Lakers so much because I think Me Rand- too. Randall's fit with LeBron and Anthony Davis is abysmal.
1: I know. I mean, here's the thing. He and Anthony Davis were like kind of okay together in New Orleans when they were together yeah, in New Orleans.
0: And I think I think uh, they like each other personally from what I from what I recall from that team's that team had generally had yeah, pretty positive but-
1: Right, but there's a reason that Julius Randle came off the bench for a large chunk of that season. Like,
0: it's it's it, yeah,
1: it make it makes no sense. I don't know why that would be the guy you would commit yourself to.
0: Okay, that uh, that, that leads me to a last question. I know that you are not Leon Rose. You are not. Wait, broad- no. Let oh, me oh, let me ahead. let me finish on this one. Oh, sure. Sorry.
1: Do you think that Russell Westbrook would happily embrace being a backup point guard anywhere?
0: No. <laughs> no, if Russell Westbrook happily embraced being a backup point guard, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in right now. Because a lot of ways, what the Lakers are asking of him, it's it's you know the parallel with Alex Crusoe. It's do less when you're when you when you're a part of the bigger picture, and then do more when you're not. And Russell Westbrook's like, eh, I'm good, and he has the right to do so. However, there are consequences of doing so, and so yeah, I, yep. I think I think that that's where things are.
1: I think you're right. I think that's definitely the most likely scenario. Scenario, but I would deem the most likely scenario extraordinarily unlikely. Yeah. But I, I do I do think the most likely scenario is they yeah they use they use Rose's salary because if they're going to trade for Donovan Mitchell the guy it's it's almost certainly going to include either Evan Fournier or Derek Rose because Fournier makes eighteen million and Rose makes fourteen and a half million and they have to get up to a, a little bit over twenty four million dollars in order to match salaries with Mitchell so you kind of have to include one of those guys and then the rest is pretty easy because you're going to include at least a couple of young guys in there. And that's just going to get, that's going to get you there. Um, and so, yeah. If if they go rose and they trade quickly, and yeah, I mean that that is definitely the most likely way. I I agree. But, okay,
0: I, uh, I realized I have one last question likely. for you. Imagining Please. that Fred Katz is running the Knicks unilaterally, it is your fiefdom. How would you be approaching Julius Randall right now? Would you be trying to trade him? Would you consider him posi- Would you only trade him for positive value? Where if you were running the Knicks, how would you be approaching? Would you how would you be approaching him?
1: I would be aggressively trying to trade him, but in a fashion that I assume nobody would actually want him. So I would I would be trying to trade him, but hoping that there was somebody out there who would give something back for him. I, I think Julius Randle is like... I think you can go get Julius Randle if you really want Julius Randle for what it's worth. I don't think it would take that much. I just... I just don't think there is a team that has really had any interest in being able to do that. I don't think people really value him after the season he had last year. Uh, you know was, he's got a four- year extension that kicks in in the upcoming season and it's gonna be at least 106 million dollars plus some extra incentives and I think people just they don't want that after the season he had last year when he was so inefficient, his defense really fell off. Uh, and, and like I said, he's just he's 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 got a reputation, whether he is willing to adapt or not. The reputation is that he's going to be disruptive to your ecosystem, that if you add him, then he is going to have to be your primary guy. And he's shown that if he's your primary guy, there is a cap on your offense, like even the season that he makes all NBA and receives second team all NBA and receives MVP votes only two years ago. Like the Knicks were still 24th in points per possession that season. And that I'm not saying like, Oh, Randall dragged them down, but it's like, it's not like just having even the best version of Julius Randall is enough to prop up your offense, even out of the, the top, the bottom seven in the league, you know? So I think, I think people are, are worried about that. So, so ultimately I would be trying to trade him aggressively, but, but I would not be like attaching things to him because I think that would be extremely counterproductive to my future. And, um, and so I, I think where I would end up landing was, in actuality, would be just trying to bring him back, trying to rehab his, his value. Uh, the good news is, if you bring him back, is that he becomes a little bit more tradable every single day that you keep him, because every single day that he's on your roster more, his contract gets one day shorter. So he becomes a little bit more tradable every single day. Uh, so I would bring him back. I would hope that he could just... People are very binary with Julius Randle. It's like, oh, he's never going to be as good as he was during his... Uh, he's never going to be as good as he was during his all NBA season. So I guess I guess they're screwed. I guess no one's going to want him. It's like, no, like Julius Randle was really good in New Orleans. He had a 60 percent true shooting his sole year in New Orleans. If he's that level of player, that contract is fine. You know, that contract does not mean you have to have an all NBA caliber season in order to justify it. He has like the 50th highest salary in the NBA next season. It's it's not uh, it, it it's it doesn't demand like MVP level players. It just means you have to be like a good player and someone will take it. So if he just has a good season, then all of a sudden you can be like, hey, Julius Randle's back. Now last season was really the outlet. Now now he's had two outlier seasons on either side of the spectrum. And he's really just kind of the player that we saw in New Orleans and at the end in the Lakers, which is like a good player who's going to put up numbers and be productive. And I think at that point, it's a lot easier to to move on from him. Um, But I also would be like, you got to find a way to play Obi Toppin. You can't draft Obi Toppin eighth. Have him look like he's going to legitimately be like a a good, helpful player and then just never give him an opportunity for three years to just not know what level he's going to be because you created this weird situation where you won't play the guy you drafted eighth. Like they, you have to find a way to play Obi Toppin whether Julius Randle's there or not.
0: That's a very healthy perspective on it. And Rose is going to have to navigate a weird challenge here, which is the simultaneous truth that Julius Randle is better than he was last year, but also is a bad fit with this iteration of the Knicks unless he really, really buys in. And so the framing of it as Randall being polarizing is, I guess, the term that I might use here, is that you need to have the temperature of the front offices that are on the good side of polarizing here, that think that Randall could help them. And whether those, you know, let's say we're narrowing the universe to 10 front offices, let's call it. Do you think that a an average season by what we expect from Julius Randle raises his stock in their eyes? And my answer is yes, I think that it would. And the other reason you brought up Obi Toppin, which is important, is that as I see it, with this Knicks team, Toppin is one possibility, but they don't really have enough wings to, or you know, like alternate theories of power forward. That if you just straight up, like, let's say the amnesty provision existed, I wouldn't use it on Randall. I would not, but that you could fill that rotation spot easily. Like in in that sort of a circumstance, I think you should trade the player more aggressively. If you think they're a bad fit, they're not going to be happy, and you have a replacement. Toppin. Could be that. I don't think it's necessarily true. And then you need to replace top into the other part. So, what that to kind of ties together to me is if somebody makes you an irresponsible offer, of course, you take it. That's true of almost anybody on any team. If you don't get that sort of a thing, I think unless that deal also gives you another potential answer for that spot within your rotation, then you can wait and see if this year is better because it's probably going to be the same teams that are interested. And also, doing so in the offseason, that flexibility is mostly gone now for other teams. Like, the reason a lot of trades happen in the offseason not in season is that rosters are more set there's the l- lack of salary flexibility everything else but i think that at this point unless like the spurs or the pacers really like Julius Randle and wanted to like you know take him in and send more like less significant stuff back and i sincerely doubt that's going to happen so yeah i think you unless that deal happens you hold on to him and you hope that things work out and remember we're we're both skeptical of his fit i don't think that is a a death sentence I think that there is a distinct possibility that it works out that he sees, hey, I can be a good player in this. I can I'll enjoy my life a lot more and it will it will happen. And then and, and also, like as you said, Randall's contract, it's significant. It's not the biggest in the league. It's not the equivalent of like the Richard Lewis or Tobias Harris contracts, especially with where the cap is going. So you can in time, if it doesn't work, go in a different direction.
1: For sure. I think even people in the league I was talking to this about with like a team's cap guy recently and, uh, I think even people in the league even though they are completely educated on just just the even the basics of how the salary cap is going up and contracts are getting more expensive and a max contract has not necessarily gone up in proportion to the cap max contracts are still 25 30 or 35% and and thus they're you know as detrimental a 35% max is as detrimental today as it was 5 years ago uh, but like I was talking with him there's just something about a $100 million contract that makes people say, oh, $100 million for that guy. And Julius Randall being at 106 million. It just like it's the 50th highest contract in the league. It's significantly less than what his max contract would be. But when you see a hundred million dollars for someone, I think there are even people in the league who just like, it's just hard. It's kind of like what we were talking about at the beginning. There's just a human element to all of this. And the human sees that extra zero. And it's, I think it is hard for people to overcome being like a hundred million dollars for that guy. And, and there are people in the league who think about it and, and, And there are definitely owners who think like this who say, yeah, okay, it's gone up in terms of a percentage of the cap. But like it's the same amount of money out of my pocket. Like the the world is not in proportion to the salary cap. Like me paying a hundred million dollars to Julius Randall today is the same as paying a hundred million dollars to <laughs> Julius Randall five years ago for me. It's the same amount of money out of my bank account. So like I do I do think that extra little um, you know human flaw and our bias towards round numbers, which is a concept I've grown very familiar with covering Russell Westbrook, plays into this too. And that's just like. Yeah you know, I don't think it would really affect things in the long term, but like, it, it's like a thing people have to get over when they talk about Julius Randall, you know, it's like, you can't just like ignore it. You kind of have to talk about it, get over it, and then move on to the next piece.
0: You brought that up. One other thing I'll say on that. People aren't ready for we're, we're not that far away from 25 million being starting solid starter money in the NBA. It's probably three, two to three years away. Like it's been 15 million. It's gone up to 18, maybe 20. And that's where this is like by the time Randall like the last couple years of this contract, it's going to be solid starter money, and everybody's gonna be just dumbfounded,
1: yeah, yeah, I mean, look, it is dumbfounding, sure, it's a lot of money
0: <laughs> it is
1: it's just an extraordinary amount of money, yeah. um uh, so it is dumbfounding, seeing anybody make that much money is like unbelievable, um, but you know as uh as many say, would you rather the players who have worked their asses off in basketball all their lives get that, or would you rather it just be redirected to the billionaire owners?
0: Right, and it's it's amazing how often fans take ownership's perspective on this, and there will be a, an adjustment that has to happen for front offices, for ownership, for media members, for fans and players alike, that as we're, it seems like we're shifting into another new financial paradigm in the NBA. It's a very good thing for a lot of different people involved, but it will be an adjustment to be sure.
1: Yeah. I've always wondered how like it'll never happen now because it's been established how we talk about salaries conversationally and and people are just kind of people don't like percentages and ratios and all that crap. But I have just wondered if like from the very, very beginning of fans and and media talking about NBA salaries in comparison to the salary cap, if we just from the very beginning when we were establishing how we were going to have this conversation, like way before you and I were ever in the media if if we just started right off the bat by not even talking about how many dollars players made and we just said oh that's an 18 percent of the salary cap contract oh he makes 19 percent of the salary cap in year one 20 percent in year two 21 in year three like it it wouldn't be nearly as jarring i think we would actually be much better as a society in evaluating the quality of these contracts uh because it would eliminate that effect that i said before of like seeing the extra zero on being like oh 100 million dollars for that guy, but that's that's never going to happen. It's not how people think. But I, I wonder if we had just trained – like if everyone just started doing that from the beginning when the salary cap first started. Like I, I just – I wonder if conversations like this would still be happening or if like it just would have never taken because ultimately people don't care about percentages and ratios and they want to talk about things in terms they're more familiar with.
0: It would definitely help the conversation. And I, I, I'm i thinking – I've thought a couple times about putting it in my own like salary sheets and stuff just as as a, as a prospect kind of for myself and having maybe you have some historical examples of oh you know Victor Oladipo's contracted this year was that or something else like that it's it's a very it's a very good idea thank you so much for taking time to come on Thank
1: you for having me, man.
0: I'm always happy to come on. Thanks again to Fred Katz for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at The Athletic, where he is the beat writer for the New York Knicks. Also, he is often on the Tampering Podcast, which is on the Athletic NBA show podcast feed. And if you don't already, you can follow him on Twitter at Fred Katz, F-R-E-D-K-A-T-Z. Love having him on. And... Fred's affinity for, you know, the nuances of the collective bargaining agreement is something that's part of, I think, how we've become friends um, and gotten along really well is because we can, he likes, he likes it. I, know, I mean, we text each other fairly frequently. He's like trying to figure out how all this stuff works. And now he has it down pretty damn pat. So I, I really do appreciate that. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode, really whatever podcast player you use. Apple, Spotify, wherever, because it's going to be on random days. That's just, it's my availability, guest availability, whether it's in season or out of season, it just depends on how these things work out. And in those same places, you can leave a rating and a review to help other people find the show, but you can also spread it through word of mouth, social media, wherever, hey, this episode, whatever else, really do appreciate that. It helps other people find the show. Then the single most important thing you can do... For this show and any other that has them, is to check out our sponsors. We have the new sponsor of Athletic Greens. I'm really excited to have them on board and to have tried their product. AthleticGreens.com/realgm R E A L G M. Also, it should be in the show notes and BetOnline.ag. Use that CLNS50 promo code to tell them that you came from us and to get yourself, more importantly for you, a 50% welcome bonus. Can also check out my other work. Nate Duncan and I are back in business doing Dunked On and Dunked On. Prime after he had a little time in the health and safety protocols. We will be starting our summer league breakdowns soon. Next couple days is the preliminary that we'll have the kind of the prep work done to start that. Really enjoy it and then of course we've done a lot of this stuff. We revisited our top 10 players. First time we've ever done that after the playoffs. That was done recently. Uh, Written work is going to be coming soon at The Athletic. I have two pieces that I'm writing right now. I don't know when either is going to be ready for editorial. My instinct is next week, just depending on how quickly I can get these things turned around. And if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny Larue, NBA, at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I do it that day. I'm not always the greatest at replying, but that's why I call it feedback. So you can check that out. And thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day.